Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, from Mississippi, Jesmyn Ward, her National Book Award winner, Salvage the Bones, is an intimate and compelling look at Hurricane Katrina and the American South. Now she has a new historical novel, Let Us Descend. In her 2013 memoir, Men We Reaped, Jesmyn Ward writes... I was born early at six months on April Fool's Day, 1977. My mother was 18, my father 20. Jesmyn weighed two pounds and four ounces. The doctors told her parents she would die. She developed blood tumors and other complications, and she almost did die, but as she says, she's a fighter and very tenacious. Much of that memoir, in fact, is devoted to trying to understand some of the tougher experiences of her life. Racism at her school, the absence of her father, and especially the death of her younger brother, age 19, who was killed by a hit-and-run white drunk driver. And then the loss of four other young black men she was close to, all of whom died violently in the space of four years. Jesmyn Ward grew up in poverty in rural Mississippi, in DeLille, on the Gulf Coast, about 100 kilometers east of New Orleans. The oldest of four children, she was the first in her family to go to college, Stanford University. She got a master's in creative writing from the University of Michigan. And after she published her first novel, Where the Line Bleeds, she won a Stegner Fellowship. Her breakthrough book, though, was her second novel, Salvage the Bones. It's a powerful story set in a small, fictionalized Mississippi town, not unlike DeLille, in the ten days leading up to Hurricane Katrina, and then the devastation of the storm itself. Focusing on one family, well, really four siblings, their debilitated, widowed, drunken father issues hurricane warnings from the margins. The personal passions of the children are played out against the inexorable menace of the storm. As one critic wrote, a palpable sense of desire and sorrow animates every page. Salvage the Bones has the aura of a classic about it. The novel won the 2011 National Book Award and was named Best Book of the Year by a number of newspapers. Jesmyn Ward followed that success with her memoir, Men We Reaped. It was named one of the best books of the century by New York Magazine. Then her next novel, Sing Unburied Sing, in 2017, made her the first woman and the first African-American to win the National Book Award twice. That same year, she received the MacArthur Genius Award. And last year, she became the youngest winner of the Library of Congress Prize for Fiction. Jesmyn Ward's new book, Let Us Descend, is an historical novel set in the antebellum South. When I spoke to her in 2014, she was at her grandmother's house in DeLille, Mississippi. 
Your novel, Salvage the Bones, has parallels to Greek mythology for, for its central character, Esh. When did you first read those stories? I read them for the first time when I was 12 years old. I was in sixth grade, but it had been years since I hadn't picked it up since then. And then when I was working on Salvage the Bones, I don't know why, like I'd taken it out to look at it. I think that I had actually found it at a bookstore. And so I just bought it and it was on my desk and I was working on the beginning of Salvage the Bones and I looked at it and and then I figured out that that's what she was reading for her summer reading. These tales of Orpheus and Eurydice or Jason and Medea, Artemis and so on, they're, they're obviously endlessly compelling, but can you talk about their particular appeal for your character, for Ash? Well, she, you know, she's growing up in a world where she's the only sort of woman or female. She's sort of surrounded by men and by boys. And so she doesn't have the usual channels to figure out, to help her, or the usual models to help her figure out what it means to be a woman because her mom died when she was very young. She doesn't have any like extended relatives that are women that live around her. And so she has to look to sort of unexpected places in order to figure out what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a woman in love or just a woman in the world. And one of the places that she looks is to mythology because she's doing this summer reading. Um, she's reading Greek mythology. And so she, um, you know, she looks to these, these mythological figures, these women. But when she comes to the myth of Medea, that's the myth that really sticks with her. And I think that that, that, that myth fascinates her because... Medea is this woman that sort of goes against type because she has power and she exercises that power and she's sort of ruthless in some ways and she's very fierce and I think that um that that appeals to Esh in some way because it's something that I don't think that she's it's something that's not common for her that she it's something that she doesn't see often. Because Esh herself is uh, 14, 15 years old. She's passionate about a 19-year-old guy in her community. She's mm-hmm. pregnant with his child, though he doesn't acknowledge their relationship. So it's something, how does she relate to, to Medea and Jason's story th- through, through her own experience? I mean, how does her own experience connect to that? Her experience definitely connects to Medea's experience in that she is very much in love with Manny, you know, with this 19-year-old kid. And as she reads Medea's story, she sees how much Medea loves Jason and then also the lengths that Medea is willing to go to in order to secure his love, I think. And Esh realizes that in some of the myths that Medea, she defied her father. And then in some of the myths, she she's responsible for her brother's death. And that disturbs um, Esh because... I think that she's sort of figuring out that family, especially her relationship with her siblings, like she's beginning to articulate how important that is to her. And so to come across that element of this sort of disloyalty and betrayal of family in the Medea myth, I think that strikes her very much as well. And then also, of course, you know, Medea is a woman scorned. And I think that Esh also, um, she identifies with that as well. Did you identify with these Greek heroines? I, uh, as a kid, I think, I think I, I don't, I don't think I identified with them so much as I aspired maybe to be some of them. I, I I remember as a kid really identifying with, um, with Artemis and also Athena. 
and um these are tough I, these are tough warrior women yeah they're tough warrior women and, and i and i think that um part of what was expressing itself in my my affinity with athena maybe because she springs full grown right out of the head of zeus and there always seems to be like that element of her relationship with her father seemed to be very important to her and all the myths that I read about her. So maybe I, I was very, you know, I loved, I loved my father very much when I was young. When I, I mean, I still do, but I, I idolized him when I was younger. So I think that maybe that's another reason that I was attracted to the, to the Athena myth. Like Ash, one of your younger sisters became pregnant when she was very young, and your nephew was born when, when she was 13. Mm-hmm. How much did her story inform your writing of Ash? You know, I I thought about that a lot before I began writing the book, and I was thinking about Esh's character and thinking about what would befall her, because I knew, before I began writing the book, I knew that she would become pregnant in the course of the book. When I was thinking about her and about, I, I think about my sister and about other girls in my community, my little small Mississippi town that I know that are like them, and I wanted Esh's experience to be honest about how difficult I think it is for young women to navigate the world in general and especially when you grow up in a poor place. I mean, I think that, I don't know, that misogyny in places, especially in the, in the American South, is still very much alive. That's something that Esh and that my sister and that other young women like her, that they definitely have to struggle with. They have to struggle so hard, I think, to assert some sense of self-worth and to find some sense of self-worth. And so I was definitely thinking about that when I was writing Ish. Your mother had worked hard in the hope of giving her three daughters an alternative to her own life as a single working mother. How did she respond to your sister's pregnancy? It was very hard for her because she did work so hard to make it so that we had an easier time of it than she had when she was growing up. So it was very, very difficult for her. But in the end, I mean, I think that she decided that she had just had to do the best that she could with the situation that she was given. And that meant raising my nephew and making sure that he and my sister were taken care of and that maybe she could create some of the opportunities that she created for us. She could create some of those for him. She's a very strong woman, and so she was able to to make the best out of what happened. In, in your novel, Salvage the Bones, Ash's mother dies in childbirth when Ash is about eight years old, and she seems to remember her saying, before she died, don't do it, don't become the woman in this bed. Mm-hmm. Did that concern resonate in your own home? Yes. You know, I think that for a lot of parents down here that that concern resonates. You know, my mom, she wanted all of her daughters to be to be independent to be strong to be able to go out into the world and make their own way and not have to depend on anyone else for their success I think that that's definitely something that she communicated to us did she succeed (laughs) (laughs) I think that um I think in a way that she did I I just think in in American culture in general that oftentimes people associate happiness with being in a successful, happy, romantic relationship. I think that's in general just what the culture tells you. So Mm -hmm. not only was my mom trying to teach us the opposite of what the culture was telling us, I think in some ways that she did, because at least I know in my own life, I've definitely 
try to to make my own happiness regardless of romantic relationships you know I've tried to make my own happiness in my writing and just with the way that I've chosen to live my life and the things that I choose to fight for so I think that she was she was successful in some ways there's another kind of love story going on in Salvage the Bones, and that's between Esh's brother Skeeta and his pit bull, China. He's in his mid-teens. He's devoted to his dog. What's that tenderness about? I don't know if I know what it's about. Skeeta, I love Skeeta's character, and I love China's character. His relationship with China and his devotion to her, that always intrigued me about him. I felt like I never felt like I really understood him and why he loves this dog so much, and then in the end, how he expressed his love for his siblings. He's, he's an interesting puzzle to me. Even after writing an entire novel and spending that time with him, I don't think that I, he's still an enigma to me. Your father owned and fought pit bulls, and, and, and you were in fact once attacked by one. What happened? So my dad, most of the time he only kept one dog, a very devoted, affectionate, never violent. I mean, this dog was never violent. But then when I was around six, he decided that he wanted another dog. The dog was full grown. And so the dog hadn't been raised around me and my brother and my sister. So my dad bought this dog. And then I was out in the field near our house playing one day with my cousins. And what they think happened, I don't know what happened because I was six. But what my father thinks happened is that the dog that he bought was attracted to a female dog that was in heat and he was standing very close to me he wouldn't get away from me and I guess that's because the female dog was there and so I I hit him and when I hit him I hit him on his back and I was telling him to move to get away and so when I hit him he attacked me my father thinks that he was trying to get my neck because you know when those dogs are trained to fight they're trained to go for the neck but he couldn't because I was actually fighting him. I was on the ground and he was on top of me, but I was fighting him. I remember like screaming and I remember punching him and kicking him. And so because he couldn't get to my neck, he ripped part of my ear off. He bit me in my head and he, I had several bites on my back too. No one, I mean, there were no, no adults outside. Then one of my aunts heard me screaming from her house she looked out and saw that he was attacking me, and so she actually ran out with a broom. I'm surprised that she was able to get him off of me with a broom. She beat him with a broom, and then he ran away. Yeah, and I was that's why I was attacked. The dog that he had owned for a long time and that grew up with us, that dog was, I love that dog. You know, that dog would lick away my tears when I cried, but this dog, he was just a stranger, and so he attacked me. I guess he thought I was a threat. And, and, and if you hadn't fought back, he, he would have killed you? Yeah. He would have. You know, I was so small. I was six years old, so, yeah, he would have. It's interesting you chose to, to write about dogs in such a central way and, and salvage the bones, and dog fights are critical to the characters in that novel. That, but, but the fights aren't about money. They're about something else, I don't know, honor or something. How, how does that work? I think that they're not about money. They are about honor and bragging rights and maybe the honor of not only the owner but also of the dog that's fighting. You know, I think that Skeeta believes, at least in the book, that he believes that he's helping China fulfill some sort of potential because I think that he sees her as the fighter that she is. We were talking about my dad fought dogs. The 
young men that I grew up with in the neighborhood, some of them had dogs. And I remember that when I was older, so when I was in high school and college, sometimes they would fight their dogs. I mean, I think it was the same thing. I think that Skeeter's experience is, is reflective of of the young men that I knew and then of my dad, like of their experiences with fighting dogs. And they kind of identify with the nobility of the animal. Yeah. They're almost using the animals to express something about their masculinity, to gain some sort of power for themselves, maybe. What does it mean to win or, or, or to lose? I think that winning means you have asserted yourself as a man. So losing, of course, carries with it a certain sense of shame. It's almost like the way that you train the dog and readied it for the fight, that, that's, that the outcome of the fight reflects the effort that you put into the dog and into the animal. And then also, I think that it reflects something of your, of your judgment, because if your dog is a good fighter and if your dog is strong, then that means that you've chosen well in the beginning. Like there's something about your judgment that allowed you to choose this animal that would be a winner. Jasmine Ward, Salvage the Bones takes place during the days leading up to Hurricane Katrina in August of 2005, as well as the, the actual storm itself. As children, your parents survived Hurricane Camille back in 1969, and, and you'd seen hurricanes before, too. What were you and your family expecting with Katrina? My mother and my grandmother and everyone that was basically older than us, they knew what to expect. They knew, because like you said, they'd lived through Camille, and so they knew how powerful and awful a Category 5 hurricane is. But we didn't know, and by we, I mean me and my sisters and the rest of the young people my age. We just didn't. I think the worst storm that we'd lived through had been like a Category 3 or something. So we didn't know what to expect. And I think that I, at the time, I just assumed that it would be like a Category 3, but maybe a little worse. You know, it would uproot a couple of trees, and that would be it. So I was totally unprepared for Hurricane Katrina. But my mom and my grandmother's generation, they knew that it would be bad. I don't think they, I think they didn't expect the flooding to be as bad as it was. And that's just because Katrina was special because it was so big and it moved so slowly and it pushed water where it hadn't been before. You were about to return to the University of Michigan to start teaching there, but you decided to stay, although you knew some kind of storm was coming. Why did you choose to stay? Because I knew that if I left that I would be worried about my family and I'd be obsessing over them here and I um, would probably feel guilty because I wasn't there with them um, or wasn't here with them. And so that's why I decided that I'd just stay, that it'd be easier if I just stayed with them for the storm. And then if I just went up to Michigan afterwards. So that's what I did. I stayed here. And then, of course, because we had no power, we had no gas. So afterwards, it took me a much longer time to get up to Michigan than if I'd left before. Did your family consider evacuating Delisle altogether? The problem is, is that my family can't evacuate because I have such a huge extended family, and it's really hard to evacuate so many people as far as money goes. It's just difficult. 
and we didn't have the mo- we basically didn't have the money and the resources to evacuate so we didn't i mean we did what we always do what we've done for generations and we just boarded up the windows and filled up the bathtubs with water and made sure we had enough canned goods and batteries and oil for lamps and we decided that we were going to ride it out and then what happened we were at my grandmother's house it was my it's my grandmother's new house so it's not the house that she lived in when hurricane camille occurred I mean, maybe it flooded here at her new house during Hurricane Camille, but we didn't know because she'd moved into this house, you know, afterwards. And so we all came to my grandmother's house to sort of ride out the storm because my mom lived in a a double-wide trailer, and of course you can't stay in a Category 5 hurricane in a double-wide trailer. And so we came here to ride out the storm. In the middle of the storm, water began coming into the house, and it rose very quickly. And... We didn't know how high it was going to rise. I mean, it was up to our waists really quickly. We didn't want to climb in the attic and drown. And so we ran out into the storm, actually. Some of our cars had been swept away. Some of the trucks actually remained. So we piled into the cars that were still above the water. And we were actually trying to find our way to the local Catholic church, but because my grandmother had keys to it, but we couldn't get there because the road was covered in water and then also that you know there were down trees and power lines and so we couldn't get there so we actually spent a good part of the storm in a high field outside near my grandmother's house Um, we pulled over into the field and sat in the field for a lot of the storm the people that lived in the house came out to check on their because they had their vehicles parked in that field and so they came out to check their vehicles and they told us that they didn't have room in the house for us but we could just stay out in the field <laughs> until the storm ended so that's what we did we said do, bel- do you believe that they didn't have room or i think that we are black and that they're white and that they didn't want us coming in their house that's what i think and did you feel like your lives were under threat at that point yes yeah when they told us that and then they went back into the house and i'm sitting there in this truck and it's a double cab truck but still I was in there, my sister who was pregnant was in there, visibly pregnant was in there, my grandparents, my mom, her husband. I mean, we're all piled into this truck and we're sitting there watching the trees snap into power lines breaking, right? The, The water is covering the road and the wind is actually shaking the truck back and forth, of course, I mean, because these are really powerful winds. And and I thought, we're all going to die. The wind is going to flip this truck over, and we're going to die. So, yes, I did think that we were in mortal danger. What did you say to each other? Nothing. I think we're all too afraid. We didn't say anything. We just sort of sat there and watched. Watched our cars, like, spin in the water, and we didn't say anything. How long did that last? Um, for a couple of hours. And then the water receded a little bit. So because the water receded a little bit, then we got back on the road and drove around the and over, in some cases, the down trees and got to the, the closest intersection, which wasn't very far. I mean, maybe a quarter of a mile. And some people were, their house was at that intersection and they'd been going out in a boat and picking up people that were closer to the bayou who had actually climbed up. These these people, their houses were completely flooded, so they'd been climbing up on their roofs, roofs of their houses, and so they were picking them up in a boat and bringing them back to their house. And so when they saw us, they waved us over to their house. 
And so we sheltered there for the rest of the storm. You say Katrina silenced you for, for more than two years. What, what made you come to write about it? It did. It silenced me because I was, I was depressed at the time. I was living at home because I moved back home. after I spent a year in Michigan, and then in 2006 I moved back home. And I was working at the University of New Orleans, which is in New Orleans East, and so every day I would drive back and forth through New Orleans East, which it seemed like Louisiana and New Orleans, they were just much slower to at least clear the debris, I guess, and, and deal with the aftermath of the storm. I was going back and forth, and it was like the storm happened maybe a week ago, or that's what it seemed like the entire time that I was working at UNO. You know, I worked at UNO for two years, and it was just so slow. New Orleans was so slow, especially the East, was so slow to come back and to pull everything together. So that event and how traumatic that event was, it was just so very present for me during that time that I was, I was silenced. I felt really hopeless, I think. And it wasn't until I saw old pictures taken during the 70s, during the early 70s, and these pictures were set around Delil. I compared those pictures to my own experience growing up in Delil and how we sort of rebuilt and come back and things had grown again and blossomed again and the landscape had come back. And so it was only after I saw those pictures that I thought, we're going to come back from this. We're going to build from this. I mean, they won't be the same. Home won't be the same, but it will be home again. It will be a home. And it was only when I had that realization that I was able to return to writing because I think that, you know, I had to have that realization in in order to find some sense of hope again. Katrina showed, as you put it, a lot of ugly things about the South and, and the U.S. in general. Can you talk about that? You know, it did. I think that it showed in general that black lives are valued less. And I think it showed that people who are poor, that their lives are valued less. And at least for me, especially after the storm, there was a really ugly conversation going on around Katrina and around the Katrina survivors or people who had, you know, stayed for the storm and not evacuated. People said things like, I don't understand why you would even go back and rebuild there since since you know that hurricanes are going to keep coming when these natural disasters are going to keep striking. Like, what's the point in rebuilding there? What was unspoken is that we're stupid. So we were stupid for coming back to this place and wanting to rebuild and wanting to live here and make lives here. And then I also, right after the storm, these are from people, some people from Atlanta, and they were saying, oh, you know, the reason that this devastated New Orleans like this and devastated this region is because of how sinfully, I mean, there's religious people, Christian people, who said it was because these are sinful places where gambling and prostitution and substance abuse and all these things take place. So it was like God's wrath visiting itself on, on that place. Those are the things that I heard personally. That's not including George Bush's mother saying that the refugees in Houston are having a nice time because they're finally able to take a trip. You know, I mean, this is it's not even counting what the people in, in places of power were saying about us. So it was ugly. I think it, what was so interesting to me about that conversation that was taking place is that it wasn't just exposing some sort of Southern closed-minded, conservative, racist, Southern attitudes, because I'd lived with them my whole life. I already knew that they were there. It was interesting to me that suddenly that 
these were American attitudes. These were expressed by people across, across the country. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. I'd like to go back to your parents' lives for a moment as you describe them in your memoir, Men We Reaped. Your father grew up in a single-parent home. He supported his mother and seven siblings when he was very young. What do you think his expectations were as a young man? My dad's a dreamer, so I think that the reality of his life up to that point was telling him that he should expect one thing, and I think the dreamer in him wanted another. And I think that that's part of the reason why why he lived his life the way he did as an adult. Because I think that growing up in a single parent home and then being the man of the family when he was growing up, I think that taught him that he should expect to work and to provide for his family and that that's what the future held for him. But I think that the dreamer in him wanted something different. I don't know if he could articulate what that other thing that he wanted was. I think that maybe it was a sense of freedom or a sense of possibility, a sense that there was a different future for him out there in the world where he wouldn't be so burdened by responsibility, where he could be this free experimental spirit living this bohemian life. And I think those two things warred in him when he was an adult, which I think is part of the reason why why he wasn't able to stay with my mother and why he wasn't able to be the father that we needed. You mentioned earlier that you felt very close to him. What was he like as you knew him when you were a girl? He was great. My dad... You know, he has this amazing sense of humor. So he's really funny, and he's funny to adults, and he's funny to kids, too. He can make you laugh no matter what age you are. And he's very charming, and he was very patient, especially with us as kids. I think he was always very aware of the fact that we were little people. There's this tradition in the, in the American South, especially in the black community, where children are not to be heard, they're not supposed to speak. I think that in that culture that kids are often not seen as little people, that they're seen as as something less than that. And my dad never thought that way, and he never acted that way with us. That's one of the reasons why I responded to him so positively and loved him so much and worshipped him, because I feel like he saw me. Your father worked in a number of different jobs, a a glass plant, an oyster factory. How how did his expectations change as as he grew older? There are things that he did to try to express himself, express this this side of him that was a dreamer and that believed in, in this sense of freedom and possibility. And I think that the succession of jobs that he had, which got worse and worse, like the work became harder and harder and full of drudgery and repetition and I think it dehumanized him in a way. I think that he felt like the only 
part of his life where he could still sort of grasp that that sense of freedom and possibility and excitement was in his romantic relationships. And unfortunately for me and my brother and my sisters and my mom, we weren't part of that equation. Because when you were only eight or nine, your mother was already on her own raising you and and your three siblings. And there's a a sense of resentment, but also strength and determination. How Mm -hmm. did you understand that as a young girl? I didn't. I didn't, I didn't understand it. I didn't see it. I couldn't see it. You know, my mom was strict. She was the disciplinarian in the family. And she had to be. You know, she was the only one. And she was tr- doing the best job that she could to raise us, to not only provide for us, but then also to make us into responsible, successful adults. But as a kid, I couldn't see past her sternness and and how strict she was to really understand how difficult it was for her to raise us. So it took me it took me a long time to get to the point where I could see it. It wasn't until I was much older, say I was in college, 19, 20, 21, 22 that I began to you know, as I grew into an adult and into my own sense of womanhood that I was able to look at my mother as an adult and as a woman and really see all that she had done. As you describe it, there was often tension in your parents' marriage while they were together. Could you read from Men We Reaped? Sure. On my eighth birthday, I didn't have a party. The year before, my parents had thrown me an extravagant party at my grandmother's house, where all my cousins came to sing happy birthday to me over a large pastel sheet cake, and I'd worn a fancy purple and white dress and been given a brand new bicycle with a lavender banana seat. The following year, money was tight. On this birthday, my parents walked me out the door off the kitchen of my grandmother's house and unspooled a white and blue rope, thick as my neck, from the trunk of the family car. I was puzzled. My father laughed. The rope was long, twice as long as the driveway. My father wrapped the rope around his shoulders and under his arms until he wore it like a great thick coat, and then he climbed the live oak tree that shaded the side of the house and reached out its dark limbs over the roof. Once he reached the branch that overhung the roof, he inched his way along the limb until he was near the middle. He unspooled the rope and tied one end of it in a massive knot, which he tugged and tested until he was sure it wouldn't give. He tied the other end of the rope, tested that knot as well, before sliding down what was now a tall swing, at least 30 feet long, made of rope so thick a grown-up could sit on it and swing without a wooden seat and would still be comfortable. Happy birthday my mother said. She put one hand on the back of my neck. Her hand was rough from constant rubbing against sheets and bedspreads and towels and from the industrial-grade cleansers that the hotel housekeepers used. Years later, she would tell me that she was miserable at that job, that the work was hard and endless, that the women that she worked with gossiped about her and my father's relationship and were overtly mean and catty to her. Do you like it? my mother said. Even at eight, I knew she felt bad for not being able to give me more, for giving me, in its basic incarnation, a piece of rope for my birthday. I love it, I said, and I meant it. Jasmine Ward, reading from her memoir, Men We Reaped. Your parents separated and your father had six more children with four different women, including one who was 14 when they met. You say that the bare facts of what our father did are ugly. Was it difficult to write him in your memoir? Yes, it was very difficult. 
because I love my dad, you know, and I didn't want him to be a villain. I wanted him to be a human being and to be complex. And I wanted the reader to understand why I love him so much, but also to understand or to get some idea of why I think that he did what he did. Yeah, so it was difficult to write about him because the facts of what he did, they are ugly on the surface. So I I had to work very hard to make his character as human and as relatable and as complicated as I could. And then it was also difficult to write about him too because, because emotionally I had to work through so much. There was so much about what I felt for him and how his leaving affected me that I hadn't realized and dealt with. And so the book demanded that of me. And that was that was a difficult process. And all the time you're thinking that he's going to read this? Yes. <laughs> yes. I figured that my mother would have a harder time with the book than my dad would, funnily enough. And one of my friends said, one of my best friends, Mark, said to me, he said, I think that your dad will have the easiest time of it. He said, because your dad knows who he is. He's honest about who he is. And I think that my friend was my friend was right. He does know who he is, and he's also very clear. I mean, we, we had a very short conversation about the book one time, and he said, every time we talk about the book, he tells me, you know, I'm so proud of you for writing your truth. That's how he understands it and that's how he sees it and it's true this I mean it's a memoir it's based on my memory and so it is my specifically my truth I mean I'm sure that there's plenty about my parents relationship that I don't understand and that if he were to tell the story it would be different so I think it's easier for him to deal with it because he makes that to deal with the book because he makes that distinction and you say your mother had more problems with it yeah she asked me not to write about her again while she's alive I was said, okay, you know, that's all I can do. She's, my, mo- my mother's a very private person, so it's very difficult. So the reading the book and knowing that the book is out in the world and that people are reading about her personal relationship with my father and then her relationships with us, that's very difficult for her. That was one of the things that was preventing me from writing the book in the very beginning for years. I mean, I, I'd say within two years after my brother died, I knew that I was going to have to write this book one day, but I didn't want to. And one of the reasons that I really didn't want to was because of my mother and how I knew it would affect her because she is such a private person. But the story was too important to me. And I thought that there was such good could come from me telling this story. So I had to do it. I had to take that risk that she would be really displeased with me. And she was. Um, She didn't disown me, which I'm very happy about. She didn't (laughs) disown you. But she wasn't happy with me. You got over it? I mean, it's been... Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, you know, I mean, you know, we lost my brother. And so I think that she can be displeased with me and she can be displeased with my my sisters. But, you know, in the end, we always remember my brother is a constant, you know, his loss is a constant reminder that we can't take each other for granted and that we don't want to do anything that we'll regret, that we'll regret when we don't have a chance to fix it. You have a daughter of your own, though. Has that changed your understanding of your parents? It did. It feels like I waited a long time to have a baby. I'm, I was 35 when she was born, and she, um, the, the epiphanies about my parents and about their relationships and about 
who they are as people and as adults and as parents, I think that they're only going to be more because I'm still a new parent and she's only, she's one, she's about to be two, but every other day I feel like I'm seeing my parent through new eyes as I'm seeing my child grow and learn and, and really discovering who I am as a parent or learning how to be a parent. Jasmine Ward, in Men We Reaped, you, you look at the lives of five young African-American men who, who died between 2000 and 2004. The central one that you build towards is, is your, your younger brother. He was only 19 when he died 14 years ago. Can you tell me a little about him? You know, I feel like every male character I write is my brother in some way. Like there's some aspect of my brother that's alive in that character. And, I, and I've written an entire book about him and I don't even, you know, there's so much about him that I'll never know. And that I feel like I'm trying to sort of write my way towards. He was very protective of me and of my sisters. When he wanted to, he had that same charm that my dad had, and he had that same sense of humor. It was really, really easy for him to, to sort of make us laugh. But then sometimes, like my mom, I could see the traits that he got from my mom, too, because he could be very serious sometimes, hardworking. There were also times that he felt like in groups, he, he would feel uncomfortable in groups of people. There was some shyness there that I felt like he got from my mom, too. But we were really close, you know, he was the closest to me out of my siblings in age, and so we grew up together. I miss him a lot. When you say you've been writing towards him in all your books, I was thinking in, in your first novel, Where the Line Bleeds, there are twins who are very close uh, in Salvage the Bones. The, the brother and sister, Skeeta and Ash, are, are very tight. How much did you draw on your, on your life with your brother for, for these relationships? I drew on it a lot. I don't think that I realized how much I'd drawn on it until I was done with both books. It wasn't until after I'd written Where the Line Bleeds, my first novel, and then was asked to talk about it, that I began to think about how my relationship with my brother informed the twins and their relationship and their characters. And then, and then I think it was the same thing with Salvage the Bones. So why did you decide this time to write nonfiction? Because I couldn't, I couldn't fictionalize the story. I thought, I mean, I thought about it, but I thought the audience wouldn't be able to suspend their disbelief because that procession of events is so awful. I thought that readers would think, this is too much, this is ridiculous, this would never happen to, all these things would never happen to one person or one group of people. That there would be death after death after death yeah. of these young yeah. men. Yeah. Your father was hard on your brother, the only son in the family, but you suggest this was in part to, to toughen him up. How, how do you think your brother's understanding of, of manhood was? Well, I think that, um, you know, that my dad was trying to teach my brother how to survive as a black man in America and in the American South, and that's why he was so tough on him. I think that he thought that being a man meant that you had to provide for yourself and for your family by any means necessary. I think that he thought that it meant that he would have to work hard. You know, my brother, in some ways, I think that he was more like my mother in his worldview, at least as far as like how he thought about what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be an adult, because I think my brother was resigned to the fact that, that his life would be hard work and that Oftentimes it would be in jobs that he 
didn't really want to do, but that he had to do in order to make it. So there wasn't that, that war, that internal war that my father had fought with trying to resign his everyday life, resign that, you know, with this, this aspect of him that was a dreamer. Like, my brother didn't really have, my brother's dreams were more practical, I think. He was steadier. When he was 14, your brother started selling crack, and you say you, you didn't judge him for this, or at least not in the way that he thought you might. What, what did you mean by that? I, because I didn't judge him because I felt like I understood why he chose to do what he did. He was doing it because he felt like he couldn't depend on my father for, for money to help keep the household together for the thing, and then for clothing and food, you know, for the things that he needed. I think that moment made me see him as an adult and as more of an adult than I was because he'd he'd looked at what he'd been given and he'd made a difficult decision. Whereas at that point in my life, I still hadn't done that yet, I don't think. Because he was still your your kid brother. He was still Mm -hmm. three years younger. Yeah. Although you say even even then you, you, you knew there was nothing you could do for him. I mean, that must have been so frustrating. It was, because, and I worried about him all the time. I sort of knew the world that we were, how the world was changing. I saw that the kind of jobs that my dad had, like, those weren't there anymore. And because my brother was, you know, having problems in school and and we didn't know if he was going to graduate and he didn't graduate, like, I didn't know, you know, I was afraid of what the world held for him. And... um I didn't want him to have to make the kind of choices that he had to make, but there was nothing that I could do to change any of that at that time. And maybe, and maybe that's part of the reason why I really felt like I had to write the book, because maybe the book is my way of attempting to change things so that some 14-year-old kid out there who thinks that he has to sell crack in order to make it maybe reads the book and maybe he's able to see that he can fight for something else that those aren't the only choices that he has to make. Or maybe I'm getting other people who aren't in that position, who are in positions of power to read the book so that we can work together to make it so that these 14-year-old kids don't have to make that kind of decision. Although that, that isn't even related to how he died. I mean, he was he was 19 years old. He had a job as a car valet at a local casino, and, and one night he's driving home and he was hit by a drunk driver. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but I think that part of what I'm attempting to argue throughout the book is that I want people to, is that I want people in, a, in positions to make some sort of change to see how young black people's lives and black people's lives in general are consistently devalued. And maybe if we can acknowledge that fact and then begin to talk about it, then we can change some things so that maybe the guy that killed my brother would have been at least held accountable for his death. Because at the heart of that failure, there was that attitude that my brother's life was just worth less because of who he was. So I'm hoping that I can begin to try to change that attitude. Because the driver was white. He, he yeah. was older. He... He wasn't even tried for manslaughter. No. He was tried for leaving the scene of an accident. Yes. He was sentenced to five years. He served three years and two months. He didn't even pay the minuscule sum of 
thousand in, in so-called restitution to your mother. I mean, how were you able to come to terms with with that? I think that I'm still angry about it, and I wish that I could do more. But I feel like I've done everything that I can just by writing about it and telling that story, so that people know and people can see the injustice of it, like the injustice of a culture that devalues lives lives like young men and young people like my brother so much that that no one's held accountable. Were you ever tempted to to name names to say who he was to 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 launch a civil suit? Um no. And I think part of the reason why is because <laughs> is because um we don't have the money because it would be so expensive and then also as far as I know the man that killed my brother is related to people who worked in law enforcement. So I don't know how much success we would have. At, at the funeral of one of your friends, another friend says, they picking us off one by one, and this is echoed later when, when other young men die. How do the young men in the community talk about it? They're bewildered. And that's the sentiment. There's this feeling that we're being hunted, that we're being picked off, that we're being targeted in some sort of way. It's hard to articulate it. And I wasn't able to articulate it until I wrote a book about it. So I think that, that there's this feeling, this, this feeling of dread and this anger because you recognize that there's injustice happening but you're not able to understand why. You're not able to articulate why. Jasmine Ward, racism is everywhere, as you point out. How is it different in the South from, from elsewhere in the U.S.? It's more, it's more overt here. I think that, um, that it's more present here because of history like the history of slavery, the history of the Civil War, the history of the segregation era, the history of civil rights, like how all that history seems so present in the South and so near, so close. And so I think that that, to me, that means that the racism here seems to be more virulent and it seems to be much harder to understand, work through, and move past. By the summer of 2004, several of your friends, cousin, your brother, had died. And, and you, you say that you and your friends knew then that you were old. You were all of 27. That was 10 years ago. Do you still feel that way? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I often feel ancient. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, it's interesting because I read different books and watched different movies. I, I was actually, what was I reading? I think it's Bruno by Iris Murdoch. And the beginning of it, you know, there's this older character and he's talking about what it means to age and what it means to deal with death and to deal with your mortality and to understand that you are going to die and that you that all these people that you love, that they will die. And... I think that's what made us feel like we were old when we were young, because we came to that understanding early, where I think that if you're lucky, you come to that understanding when you're in your 60s or 70s, not when you're in your 20s. And so 
Um, so yeah, so I think that definitely made us feel old before when we were very young. And I think that it still shadows me today. At different points in your memoir, you acknowledge a certain ambivalence about living in the South. Do you still feel that? I do. I, I, I do. I struggle with it. I mean, I, I moved home because it was important for me to be here, to be around my family, to be in my community, to live in this place where the, I, there are so many people here and so many things here that mean so much to me. But at the same time, sometimes I get tired, you know, and I, and I, and I, when I moved back, part of the reason that I thought that it would be good for me to move back to is so that I could fight the good fight here against all the awful things that I don't, that I dislike about the South. But, um, like I said, you know, sometimes I do, sometimes I get tired and sometimes I would rather not fight. Sometimes I want to lay down on my weapons, but, but I don't, but I do still, I am, sometimes it, you know, I am conflicted about it. You're still Artemis? Yes. <laughs> or Athena, even better. Or Athena, Athena, Athena yes. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to have the chance to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jasmine Ward in Delille, Mississippi in 2014. Her 2011 novel, Salvage the Bones, and her memoir, Men We Reaped, are both published in paperback by Bloomsbury. Her second National Book Award winner, Sing Unburied Sing, is available in paperback from Scribner. Her brand new novel is called Let Us Descend. Today's show was produced by Mary Stinson. Katie Swales is also producer. The associate producer is Melissa Gismondi, with thanks this week and several of the previous weeks to Olivia Pascarelli. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. You can also hear us on our website at cbc.ca slash writersandcompany and anytime on the CBC Listen app. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, Tim O'Brien, described as the best American writer of his generation, he drew on his own experiences as a young soldier in the Vietnam War in his classic 1990 book, The Things They Carried. Now he has a new novel, his first in 20 years. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.